The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles, if you would, and open them to Exodus chapter 20. And our study today takes us to the second of the Ten Commandments. In the first, God said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now that is uh, more than a statement to ancient Israelites as they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's more of, uh, than a statement to scientifically ignorant people who have no better sense than to know that there is a God. But that is actually the Lord God who speaks to us and says to us, the creator of the universe says to us, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That is a statement of the one true God that all of us must believe. Now the command to make God first and to serve Him only is needed as badly today as it was in the times that Moses gave these commandments to Israel. And we might even say that it's more needed today than then Because we have never had a time in the history, at least when you and I have lived, that people are so less dependent on God than they have been before. We have all of these other things that are in the way. Our world is plagued with relativism and pluralism and pantheism and atheism and animism. And if I could even make up a word for you, selfism. There has never been a time when the world was so much about self rather than about God. We are less dependent upon God than we have ever been in the time of the history of these United States. And that's because people have educated themselves away from God, and we've done that to disastrous consequences. The commands that God gives us in the Word have been shuffled away. They are ignored. We don't read these anymore. We don't listen to them anymore. And our children are absolutely ignorant of their responsibility before a holy God. We used to make memorization of the Ten Commandments mandatory. These were a part of school curriculum so that children would learn right behavior and how to treat their fellow man. God said, you'll have no other gods before me. And what we have responded with is we will have all other gods before you. And all other gods only have one power. That is the power to destroy. And the reason they have that power is because those gods are the gods of the imagination, which in effect means that we destroy ourselves by not trusting, believing in the one true God. Our hearts, the natural heart, has never lifted us. Our intentions always, our best intentions, always descend into our worst nightmares. Without God, we are doomed to suffer the consequences of our inherent depravity. Well, that brings us then to the second commandment, which is similar to the first. However, God doesn't repeat himself. This is a different command. There is difference in these two commands. And we see them in Exodus 20, the second commandment, in verse number 4 down through verse number 6. Here, God says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. 
and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now there is a difference between the first and the second commandments. The, the difference is notable. In the first, we are forbidden to worship a false god. It's the exclusion of all other gods. I like this comment that I read recently. The Christian religion is at once the broadest and narrowest in the world. It is a faith that admits every possible kind of person, but it admits them in only one way. There is one God, only one. Now I want you to understand that the one God that we're speaking of is the Hebrew God of the Old Testament. The one God is the Christian God of the New Testament. It's always been the same, whether Old or New Testament or whether we're talking about today. There is only one true God. There is only one God that we are to worship. There is one true God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the first commandment says we're not to worship any God but Him. And then the second commandment is also about worshiping God. It's about worshiping the one true God in the wrong way. And that is that we don't have the freedom to choose to worship God in any way that we want to worship Him. And the second commandment says, God says, you cannot make an idol to represent me. You cannot make an idol. You cannot make an image to worship me. You cannot make anything that represents me. And you can't bow to that image and you cannot worship it. Now in the second commandment, this is what we learn. That the false is forbidden. The false worship of God is forbidden. That's where we're going to spend our time today. This one point, the false is forbidden. It seems to be as straightforward as it can be, and yet not only were ancient cultures prone to make idols and to worship them, so we also find that today's Christians, or who call themselves Christians, will worship idols. And we, we can't imagine how it would be. I mean, only in the wildest imagination of a Christian could we ever think that God could be substituted for. That God could be worshipped with an idol that we make with our own hands. And yet this is done. And it's not new. It started with Christianity, or in, it got incorporated into Christianity, about 1,500 years ago when Constantine wedded religion wedded Christianity or his brand of Christianity with the state. And when he did that, out came this golden calf of Catholicism. Now there was a strong propensity for man to fall into the sin of idolatry and that's always been a problem. And it's a problem that we can't seem to shake. As the title of the message suggests, it's dumb to worship idols. And idols themselves are dumb. It is a dumb thing to worship an idol. And I'm not being unkind when I say that, because I'm giving you exactly what the Word of God says. I'm not stepping beyond the bounds of Scripture when I say that idols are dumb. Oh, the Bible says it mockingly, in fact, in the book of Isaiah. I'd like you to turn there if you would, and this is not the only place that we find it, but Isaiah mocks the worship of idols, the making of idols with the hands and he mocked Israel for the way that they did it. And he said, this is what the idolater does. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse number 14. He describes it, what the idol worshiper does. He says, he heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourisheth it. Then shall it be for a man to burn. 
for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire, and with part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. And so he describes a man who takes a tree out of the forest. He cuts it down. He builds a fire with it. He warms himself with it. He cooks his food with it. And then he takes the leftover wood that he cut down and makes himself an image. And he bows to that image and he prays to it. And he says, this is my God. That's a stupid thing to do. There's no logic to that. It speaks of man's willful ignorance of God. Habakkuk said the same. He said, an idol itself is dumb. He wrote, what profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it, the molten image, and a teacher of lies, that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols? Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. Now, I'm sorry. I'm not really trying to be mean to those who say that they're Christians who think that they can worship God through their little idols and their trinkets and their relics and their statues of saints and their statues of Mary and of angels or whatever else. An idol is a dumb thing. And we say that it's dumb because it doesn't speak. An idol doesn't hear. An idol doesn't move. An idol has no power. Man made it. It doesn't make man, and it can never help man. Paul said the same thing to the Gentiles who made uh, gods to every, or idols to every god imaginable. He said to superstitious Gentiles, you are carried away unto dumb idols. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but we have to start our study right here at what the Bible has to say about idol worship, that worshiping idols is dumb. But let me qualify that statement a bit for you. I'm not saying those who do not worship idols are intellectually superior to those who do. I'm not saying that we are intellectually superior to those who choose to worship God in a different way. And as much as I would like to say that we have more sense than a Buddhist who makes his statue a Buddha, or that we have more sense than a Hindu who worships his many different gods, or that we have more sense than an animist who makes an animal in order to make his god, or more sense than a Roman Catholic who has his little gods. I'm not saying that we have more sense than them. That's not what I'm saying at all. You know, I read, I read a, a pamphlet a Baptist preacher wrote who said, thank God that we have the sense to believe. No, this is not about our sense. It's not about our intellect. It's a matter of the heart. And it's a matter of revelation. It's a matter of the Holy Spirit speaking to us and bringing us out of this evil tendency that we have to put God under our feet, to put God beneath us. And that's what an idol always does. It's not our good sense that brings us out of idolatry. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, or otherwise we would be idolaters. Only He can show us the truth of this. Now this is exactly Isaiah's point. How do you carve out a God? How do you take wood or stone or plastic or whatever it is and take your own hands and fashion yourself a God? 
How do you take a stone that you would lay on the ground and use as pavement and then turn that into a god? How do you take plastic that makes disposable spoons and forks and knives and containers for paper clips? How do you make that into a god? It's unreasonable. But the unreasonableness of it is a person who is ignorant of the one true God. The irrationality of it is the human mind that cannot meet God and cannot conceive of God unless we have something to show us. Unless we have some kind of, 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 of thing that will show us what God is. It's not my good sense that brings me out of those kinds of intentions. It's the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God who reveals to us the truth. Or we would also worship false gods. Now the problem is that we're not willing to worship and serve a God that we can't see. And so we need a representation of God in order to build our confidence. It's like Thomas who refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he said, I must touch the nail holes in his hands. I must thrust my hand into his side or I will not believe. And so people say, I don't know if I can believe this thing or not. I've got to have a crucifix. I've got to have something that I can touch. I must have something I can see, something I can run my hands down and feel the holes and see the side and see all of that. And and that's what gives me the confidence in the unseen. That's their representation of God. And their faith is built on what they can see. And that's exactly what idolatry is. You couldn't describe it in a better way. The commandment is about this very thing. You cannot worship God by worshiping Him in a false way. That is forbidden. And so the commandment says, Do not make an image. Don't make anything that is an object of worship. So you can't make an image of a false God, and you cannot make an image of the true God. Well, let's think for just a few minutes about why God was so forceful about this command. Why did he emphasize this right at the top of all of the commandments? Well, could it be that Israel always had a problem with idolatry? Before the law was given and after it was given, it was a problem for Israel to stay away from idols. Their forays into the worship of Assyrian gods and Babylonian gods caused God later to take the kingdom away from them. And so this commandment was a very strong warning about what they would do afterwards But it started in what they had done before. Israel, before Sinai, they didn't know what they were going to do in the future. They they couldn't see into the future to see what would happen, but they did know what had happened in the past. They did know where they had been. And so they could start with Abraham, who is he. He's the father of the Jews, the father of the faithful. They could start with him. And when God called him, Abraham was an idolater. Abraham was a very smart man. His intelligence was not a factor in his idolatry. He was an unsaved man, and he didn't yet know the one true God. And so he wasn't unlike all the others that were around him. They also had their little gods to worship. Joshua explains in Joshua chapter 24, when speaking to Israel much, much later, and Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. Joshua pointed this out to tell them that Abraham had to reject the idol worship of his family, and he had turned to Jehovah. And then he said to Israel, What are you going to do? Who are you going to worship? 
And he goes on in the 14th verse. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, if you'll look very closely at those verses, at the end of verse number 14, it says, Put away the gods that you served on the other side of the flood. Well, you're very much aware that Abraham lived after the flood. This is not talking about the flood of of Noah's time. This is talking about the other side of the Euphrates, where Abraham lived and where they worshipped false gods. Then he adds to that, put away these gods that you worship where? In Egypt. Now catalog that information for a few minutes and let's think about what they had done before in Egypt. Now you would think that God's blessings upon Abraham and his change to belief in the one true God would have been good for his descendants, good enough that they would also have rejected idolatry. And yet we find just a few years later that Jacob, his grandson, and Rachel, his wife, flee, were fleeing from her father Laban, and Rachel had stolen Laban's little gods. Now Jacob lived with Laban for more than 20 years. And in all that time, it seems he didn't have influence over his father-in-law. He had no influence over his wife Rachel, And so they must have been serving along with Jehovah God these false gods. And these little gods that Rachel had stolen from her father-in-law Laban were like a little St. Christopher medals that they thought were going to help them in their travels. And so maybe they put them on the head of the camel as they traveled along, you know, looking to that little god to help them as they went. Well, eventually, Jacob and all of his descendants ended up in Egypt. And through the righteous influence of Joseph... I'm sure there was a considerable time when they were serving the one true and only Jehovah God. But they were in Egypt for a long time. And they were there a long time after Joseph died, and then Joseph's influence was gone. And so Israel was then thrust into this period of Egyptian idolatry for about 200 years, and they were there for so long that they had lost touch with the faith of Joseph and they began to serve other gods like the Egyptians served. So we ought not to think of the Hebrews in Israel, uh, or in Egypt rather, as being religiously oppressed people. Because they weren't. They were worshipping other gods. Maybe not all the time the same gods that the Egyptians worshipped, but they had mixed the worship of Jehovah God with idol worship. And this is what the Word of God is talking about. Don't serve those other little gods that you served on the other side in Egypt. And so even Moses himself was somewhat confused by this because he met God at the burning bush. And he had to ask God, what is your name? You're going to send me to Israel to speak to them? What is your name? Who are you? Which one of these gods are you? Well, the ten plagues then become as much a sign to Israel as they were to Egypt. They had to learn that Jehovah God is the only God, and God showed them that, that no man-made idols of the Egyptians, either theirs or the Egyptians, could, could overcome the one true God. 
And so here we have the majority of at least 2 million slaves that came out of Egypt and they did not have a correct relationship with the one true God. They had mixed his worship with idol worship. And when you do that, you lose the true God. You lose the worship of God in it. Now let me say something that you might not like. We don't have the intensity of hatred against idolatry that Christians of the past had. Puritans were strictly opposed to idolatry, and they should have been. Idolatry is cruel. You only have to look at the madness of human sacrifice to see the cruelty of it. The Puritans hated it in every form. They were sensitive to it because they'd felt the wrath of Roman Catholicism because of it. They had been persecuted because they would not worship those idols. Thomas Watson, in his signature Exposition of the Ten Commandments wrote, Come not into the company of idolatrous papists. Dare not to live under the same roof with them, or you run into the devil's mouth. Go not into their chapels. Do not see their crucifixes. Do not hear their mass. As looking on a harlot draws to adultery, so looking on popish gilded picture may draw to idolatry. Dare not join in marriage with image worshippers. Though Solomon was a man of wisdom, his idolatrous wives drew his heart away from God. For a Protestant and a Papist to marry is to be unequally yoked. And it is more danger that the Papist will corrupt the Protestant than hope that the Protestant will convert the Papist. We hardly ever hear that kind of preaching any longer. Evangelicals have become enamored with a personable Pope while the Puritans feared the flattery of idolaters. Now it seems to be an innocuous thing, but you can't worship God in the wrong way. It is forbidden to make idols. Now interestingly, I, I was studying Watson on this subject, and the copy that I was looking at, uh, that I was studying from one copy, but I have a copy of the same book in my father's library, and he had underlined this very same quote that I gave you just a moment ago, And uh, I was reading from a different copy, but then I switched over to his copy, and I saw that he had underlined the very same thing that caught my attention. And I noticed that when he underlined it, he'd written a note beside it that he preached on that particular text, or preached on the second commandment, way back in June of 1960. It was a problem then. And idolatry is still a problem today. And we get further and further away from the understanding of how terrible that it is, and what a danger that it is. And so today it stings to hear that a Christian should never consider marrying a Roman Catholic. But isn't that what God told his people? When they return from captivity and idolatrous Babylon, this is what the scripture says in Nehemiah, they claved to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His judgments and His statutes, and that we would not give our daughters under the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. What's he talking about? Well, they just come out of idolatry in Babylon. They just come out of the captivity and they promised that they were going to return to the laws of the Lord God that Moses had given them. And they said, we are not going to give our daughters to idolaters and we are not going to take the daughters of idolaters for wives of our sons. As Watson would say, don't let your children marry idolaters. 
Now, folks, I know this sermon is going to ruin my chances of being in the ministerial association. That's not going to work. But I've chosen the God that I'm going to serve. And you need to do the same. Don't serve the same God as idolaters. Don't join with idolaters because God forbids it. So here is Israel immersed in idolatry for 200 years. And God brought them out of that mess. But they still had this propensity towards idol worship. And so God had to warn this about, warn them about this. No doubt there was some worship of Jehovah in Israel. But like Christianity is today, they had mixed it with the worship of idols. And to worship God falsely is not to worship God at all. So God also had to impress on them about idolatry because of where they were going. They came out of a country that was steeped in idolatry. They were headed for a country that was exactly the same. This country of the promised land of Canaan was filled with idolaters. They had all these different gods just like the Egyptians did. And so here is Israel right in the middle, sandwiched between their past and idolatry, and headed to a future where there was also idolatry. And so what did they need to be? Well, they needed to be God's chosen people, and they were. And they needed to be witnesses of the one true God. And so they couldn't mix up their worship with idolatry. To do so would be to ruin their calling. And so they must be witnesses of the truth of salvation, and they must have a true worship of the one true God, and it was forbidden to do anything else. They can't worship with idols. Now, another interesting point about the Puritans is that they rejected idolatry so thoroughly that they carried it too far. In verse 4 of Exodus 20, it says there are no images to be made, no images of anything in heaven that is on the earth and in the seas, and that led them to believe that they were never to make an image of anything for any purpose. And so they outlawed pictures of people. They didn't want their portraits to be painted. Oh, they would never have a lawn decoration like my wife has at our house. My wife has a frog sitting next to the front porch. She has the, an image of a duck and an image of a tortoise. And I don't know why she did this, but she put a statue of a coiled rattlesnake in the front yard. And the neighborhood kids were panicking as they went by. And I told her, you can't put that thing in the front yard. You're scaring the kids half to death. And so she took it around. She put it in the backyard. And uh, she forgot that it was there. And so she went out in the dark one night, forgot it was there, and it like to scared her to death. And so I had to call the paramedics to revive her, and we almost lost her on that night. But uh, we don't worship those idols. I mean, that, that snake is terrifying. We don't worship it. Now, the, having the snake in the backyard is not a total loss. It's a good idea because it scares the cats away. Anything that scares a cat to death, that's okay with me. So some Puritans then were so, were so against images because of verse number 4 that they wouldn't make a duck. They, they wouldn't make a toad. They wouldn't make a tortoise, not, not a statue of that. And on the basis of that, that, that command in the fourth verse, they outlawed everything. They outlawed pictures of people. They said, we're not going to allow to have our picture taken, and people are like that today. We're not going to allow our picture to be taken because of idols. Now let me say this to you, that the misinterpretation of the Word of God is also bad. That misinterpretation is harmful. That is not the intent of this Scripture. 
And I can show you why. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 25. And here we find instructions for making the mercy seat that went on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Notice what they did in Exodus 25, verse number 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall she make, ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be. Now we read that and we say, no, wait, 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 just a minute. God commanded them to make two cherubims of gold. They're beaten out of the gold and they're made into an image and they're put above the mercy seat. And God says their wings are to stretch out over the mercy seat until the tips touch one another. And then not only this, but he also told them to weave into the fabric between the veil or in the veil that separates the, the holy place from the holy of holies. He said, you weave cherubim into that. And then not only that, but he said, you weave cherubim into the ceiling of the tabernacle. So how could they do this? How could they make those images and not violate the commandment against idols? Cherubims are angels. So how do you make images of angels? Well, there's a key to all that, folks. And the key is worship. You can't make an image through things which you're going to worship God. And so my, God, my, my wife doesn't worship the frog in the front yard. And she doesn't worship the duck. And she doesn't worship the tortoise. Oh, we do have one on the inside that she thinks highly of. And maybe she does that one. But she doesn't worship those statues. Now, there is a picture of me on the wall as you go up the steps. She is required to curtsy as she goes by and, and pay reverence to it. I'm teaching her something there. Uh, that's what Jorge has learned to do with pictures of Mina. He does the very same thing. But the Bible does not prohibit those things. It's when you make an image through which you are going to worship that it becomes a violation of the commandments. And so if it's an angel, or it's a saint, or it's a crucifix that's used in worship, that is an idol. And the false is forbidden. We have to worship God in the way that He describes now remember this then, that when you wrench the Scriptures out of their intended purpose, and you say that making a picture of someone, taking their picture, is making an idol and violates the command, you have twisted the Scriptures beyond what the Word of God says. And not only that, you have violated the next commandment. I'll explain this when we get to it, but it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And did you know that twisting the Scriptures and using them for your own purpose when God has not said it is to take God's name in vain? I'll explain that when we get to that commandment. And so now, if you want to see then how all of this gets twisted and how the true God is worshipped falsely, now you can turn to Exodus chapter 32. And this is what Israel was prone to do. They learned who the true God was, but then they turned to worshiping the true God in the wrong way. Now between chapters 20 and 32, Moses was up on the mountain receiving instructions from God. That was the time that he received the Ten Commandments. He received all the worship and all the articles of furniture that were to be built in the tabernacle. He gets all that information while he's up on the mountain. And Moses had been up there for a long, long, long time. And the people were down below and they didn't know what happened to him. And so they started to get antsy. 
And this is what they do in Exodus 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us out, up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not, or we don't know what became of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off them unto Aaron, and he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now look at this very carefully. It's obvious that Aaron did not make this calf to represent the gods of the Egyptians. Now Jehovah God had just convincingly, convincingly destroyed all of the Egyptian gods. And so when Aaron made the calf, his intent was not to make a god of the Egyptians. Instead, what Aaron did was to make an image that represents the true God who was up there on Mount Sinai with Moses. The people wanted something they could see. They couldn't see God. And Aaron gave them something. And then he said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And so what did Aaron do? Well, he hadn't seen God. None of the people had seen God. No one has ever seen God. And so what uh, Aaron did was to make an image of something he had in his own mind, something that was familiar to him. And so he made a golden calf to represent the one true God. And what you can't do is you can't worship the true God in the wrong way. And you know how unhappy that God was with, was with that. And then another example of this is when the kingdom was divided. And it became two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. In the north, Jeroboam was the king of Israel. Rehoboam was the king of Judah in the south. And Rehoboam had an advantage. And that's because the temple was located in the south, in Jerusalem. And so Rehoboam had the advantage of worship. Now, if the northern kingdom then was going to worship God, then they had to go to Jerusalem. And Jeroboam saw that to be a problem because if the northern tribes went to Jerusalem to worship God, then it would keep them in constant contact with the south and with their friends and with Rehoboam, most importantly. And then eventually they would begin to forget about their differences and they would decide, well, you know, we need to get back together again. And if they did that, then Jeroboam would lose his throne. And so he came up with a scheme for worship. And he told the people, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. I'm going to give you a way that you can worship God without going to Jerusalem. And so he set up two places where they could worship God. One was in the far north at Dan. The other was along the southern border with Judah at Bethel. And there Rehoboam, or Jeroboam rather, set up two altars and two golden calves. Well, what was he trying to do? Well, he wasn't trying to give them a new God. He gave them a representation that they could call God. And he said, you can come here to worship. Go to Dan. Go to Bethel. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. And so he set up an image there that they could worship God in the wrong way. Now, interestingly... That's the same as what Roman Catholicism says about its idols. And they'll say, we're not worshiping the idol. We know the idol isn't real. We're worshiping the true God through the idol. The idol reminds us of God. That helps us to worship Him. This is deja vu all over again. It's the same as Rehoboam 
who said, this will remind you of the temple. This will remind you of God. You can worship Him through the calf. And that's precisely what this commandment is about. You are forbidden to make idols of false gods, and you are forbidden to worship the true God in a false way. G. Campbell Morgan commented that man was not, not to, uh, forbidden to make representations of everything, but he was forbidden to make representations for worship. Now, G. Campbell Morgan was the, uh, was the minister uh, at Westminster. And in Westminster Abbey, he said there are vacant niches where images once stood. And he said they weren't taken down because they were statues, but they were taken down because they were idols, or rather candles, that were placed in front of them, and people would come and bow down and worship. And so therefore they were removed because they were violations of the commandment. The Roman Catholics say we don't worship the image, we worship God who is behind the image. We don't worship the crucifix, we worship the Christ of the crucifix. And you couldn't explain the prohibition any better than their excuse for doing it. That is exactly what the commandment forbids. Now they have many other problems, of course. Their theology of God and how that we're saved is seriously wrong and soul damning. And because of those things, they wrongly conceive of God, which leads them into idol worship. Now as I finish today, let me make a comment to you about how that our Baptist churches can be guilty of worshiping God in the wrong way. Do we have idols in our church? Well, you can look around. You don't see any statues here. You don't see any idols. There are some who complain or have said that, well, the cross and the baptistry, that is an idol. That ought not to be there. But there's no one hanging on that cross. There's no image on the cross. And that cross itself just simply represents the religion of Christianity. Now, a few years ago, there was a lady who came here and she had been converted out of Catholicism and she came and she went over to the cross and she kneeled down right there in that spot, vacant spot there, in front of the cross and she began to pray. Now, she was just like Israel that was out of, come out of the bondage of, of Egypt and she didn't understand how to worship God in the right way. She had just come out of the bondage of Catholicism and she was confused about how to worship God in the right way. And so I went over to her and I asked her to get up and I began to explain to her, you don't have to go to that cross. You don't have to bow before that cross. You don't have to pray to that cross because that would be an idol. And we don't worship God in that way. That's not the purpose of putting that over there. We can't worship God through an idol. And when that cross becomes something that we do worship and say, that's our God, then it becomes an idol to us. If it represents God to us, it becomes an idol to us. And so the cross, and an image on the cross, when that twists your minds away from true worship of God, it becomes an idol. And I'll also say this, that if you wear a little cross around your neck, and if for some reason that cross makes you feel closer to God, or if you feel some kind of virtue because you wear that cross, or you put a value upon it that's more than just a value of another piece of jewelry, then it's become an idol to you. If you're afraid to lose it because it holds more value beyond what it costs at a jewelry store, then it's sacred to you and it's an idol. Now our Baptist churches have fostered another false idea and that is that coming to this platform, coming to the steps of this platform, will make you closer to God. And so they call this in many churches an altar. And there are altar calls. 
And, and they, they believe that if you come here, that you're going to get closer to God. Now, I know there's some will say, and probably true, and I don't doubt it, that's not our purpose. We don't do it for that reason. But coming up here, that's supposed to say something about your willingness to do something for God, rather than if you'd stayed in your seat at the back and in, the, in, in uh, confidence and speaking to God who is invisible without anybody seeing what you're doing, that's not good enough. You have to move up here because this is a more sacred place than being back there. And when you do that, this place becomes an idol. It becomes an altar. And I'll repeat what I've said so many times before. You'll never find an altar in a Baptist church. Baptist churches don't make altars because we don't worship any God but the God who is unseen. We don't need an altar. We don't have a sacrifice that's made here. We don't have an altar in our church. So what about this? What if I say, well, you can come to the front? Or I say that you can go to the back, which I often say. Does that make that place an altar? Does it make this place an altar or make that an image, rather, that we, uh, an idol by which we worship God? Well, no. You can, you can move from one place to another. But if you do it because you think you'll be closer to God if you come here, or you're closer to God if you go back there, then it is an idol. And God says... You can't have idols. You can't worship me through an idol. Now we have to be careful about such things. And then let me just make a final note. Idolatry is dangerous. I said before it's cruel. Puritans, Protestants, Baptists hate it. Because Rome's idolatry and misconceptions of God made them persecutors. False gods drove their madness. And if you break this commandment, it leads to destruction. Idolaters put babies in the arms of flaming idols to sacrifice them. And false Christianity burned believers at the stake because people like Baptists refused their idolatry. Now Paul's reflection of the golden calf in Exodus is a statement that he made to the Corinthians. He said to them, But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither be idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If you worship God falsely, it leads to destruction. Worshiping a dumb idol will do it. And so, Christians, we need to be careful. Don't fall into the sin of idolatry. Don't mix with people who do. Trust in the one true living God and worship Him in the way that He says that He wants to be worshipped. Never use an image. Never use an idol to worship the one true God. Let's pray. Father, we come to You thanking You for the truth of Scripture. Help us, Lord, that we might turn from everything that we could be in our lives that would be an idol. And as we come back to this subject next week, we'll look at that also as how we can make idols of things that we can't see, but yet they're still idols in our hearts. And Lord, we need to turn from all of these things and serve you and you alone. No representations of you. And the Lord, we pray for what we've said today, that it would touch hearts in such a way that there won't be anger here, that there won't be resentment over things that I've said. We haven't done anything here but to look in the Bible 
and see what the Scripture says. And if we agree with that, then we have no fear to preach the Word of God. So, Lord, we thank you for the truth that you've given us. Help us to stand on that truth and be people of the Word. And may we worship you always in the right way, trusting only in your mercy and your grace to save us. The invisible God is our Savior. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.